All right, I'll do an ad before we get started. What are you shaking your head at, Ether? Which one? Uh, I'm going to do Tea Public. Would you like to do it? I don't know. Would I? Yeah, just pitch our Tea Public store. <laughs> you too can purchase your Alien Conspiracy podcast gear. Just go to Tea Public. Links in the description or on our link tree. Yes, that's right. If you wear t-shirts or clothing of any kind and would like to substitute that clothing with a t-shirt, go ahead and check out our Tee Public store. <laughs> All right, anyways, here we go. I'm actually wearing one of the shirts right now. I'm wearing a hoodie. Nice. Agent Ether, where's your shirt? I'm cold and I'm wearing a jacket. <laughs> she doesn't have a shirt. No. All right, here we go. It's time for the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. We are your hosts, Agent ETA, Agent Ether, and Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email address, AlienConPod at ProtonMail.com. We would love to hear from you. And don't forget to check out all of our other links in the description on our link tree. This week's episode, The Maury Island Incident. This is a fun one, guys. Aren't yeah, they all this fun? one is crazy. Yeah, it, this... <clears throat> This one, if you just look at the brief description, it's okay. It was a hoax. Okay, good enough. But when you actually start looking into the case, it starts tying in to all sorts of like really crazy stuff. It gets, it just gets weirder and weirder the more you look into it. But all right, well, hey, let's jump into it. So this case, we have a couple of main witnesses. That would be Fred Chrisman and Harold Dahl. It involves the men in black. It involves a UFO sighting. Even Kenneth Arnold got involved. Um, it's one of the first trace evidence cases, if not the first trace evidence case, and even involves a possible abduction. Although some people consider it to be, um, I don't, I'm skeptical on that particular front, mm -hmm. but we'll get to all that stuff. It's got like all this stuff. It's got bugged rooms. It's got the FBI, the CIA, yeah. the air force, the military. It's. Yeah, the, the, the first uh, the first two deaths that the Air Force ever had, because the Air Force was just recently when this happened, recently created. Yeah, and that's 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 kind of nuts. That like the first two deaths that ever happened in the Air Force was related to a UFO investigation. Yeah, like that day, the, mm -hmm. the that morning they create the Air Force that morning, and then or that day <clears> I guess, <throat> and then the morning of that day, boom, airplane crashes. <laughs> bad luck, I guess. Bad, I don't know. Bad luck for those two dudes. Yeah. Well, that's, that's kind of another weird thing about the case that we'll get to later. But before we talk about the case, I wanted to talk about the time surrounding the case. Because you had this cluster of events where all of a sudden you had all this really crazy UFO ta activity happening pretty much all at once. And so we're talking about 1947 here. And the, the case we've talked about from 1947 would be the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And that was sort of the beginning of a major flap. He saw his sighting on June 24th, 1947. Although there were sightings before his, his is sort of like the big event because he was such a reliable witness and he had really good data. We, ha we have a case about him. On July 4th, the crew of Flight 105 witnessed some flying discs. As they left Boise, Idaho, <coughs> the tower joked, be on the lookout for flying saucers because this was in the middle of a major flap. Everybody was seeing them all the time. So they joked about it. And it turns out that on the way, they saw four or five objects that were smooth on the bottom and rough appearing on top. One object was larger than the rest. And they didn't really say they could test. They, they didn't say it was disc shaped like 100%, but they, you know, it was a UFO and it was pretty sus looking, I guess. Um, and this is possibly the first sighting ever reported by an airline crew and i definitely want to talk about this case in depth more at some point i don't know when that point will be maybe a bonus case or something i don't know but uh for this we're going to just leave it at that because we want to get on to this case so a few days later 
the Roswell Army Airfield issued their famous press release claiming that they had recovered a flying saucer. And this this was just, you know, a couple of the events that happened around this time. But there were people, individuals, large groups all over the country and probably the world. Everybody was reporting these things like these flying saucers. And some people sort of dismissed it as mass hysteria or, you know, people are just hallucinating or maybe they're seeing meteors or something. But the Air Force did take it seriously. Uh, uh, General Air Force General Nathan Twinning opened Project Saucer or Project Sign. It's kind of known as both in 1948. And that project would be rolled into Grudge and later Blue Book. By 1949, the project issued a report saying that some UFOs were definitely flying aircraft of some kind, but most reports could be explained by mundane objects. They also issued the famous, but probably lost, estimate of the situation. And I've talked about this before on the show, but the estimate of the situation, and actually Rupal talks about it in his book, which I've read on the show, uh, they conclude in that estimate that some of these crafts are uh, interplanetary. So this is our military saying this way back in 1949, that's, way back. That's then. an amazing statement. You yeah. Know? It's that's crazy. And you know, what's also crazy is like around like Mount Rainier and stuff ever since this has happened, like it has been a hot spot for UFO encounters or incidents or whatever, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a hot spot. There's a lot going on there. There's a lot of stories to talk about, but obviously we're talking about this specific one, you know? Yeah. I digress. And yeah. And the, the estimate of the situation, if you remember, um, they, it went up the chain of command and somebody, up, uh, not at the very top, but somebody in the middle of the chain of command is like, no, 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 burn it. Burn them all. Get, we didn't see this. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Burn every copy that you guys made. And they that's apparently what they did. I like to think that out there in someone's attic is a copy of this <laughs> thing sort of kicking around, you know, but I doubt it's unlikely, but it's, you know, who knows? It's nice to think that there might be one out there. All right, so plenty of documents back up that the military was taking things seriously. For example, the famous Twinning memo from General Twinning states, the phenomenon is something real and not visionary or fictitious, among other things. Again, that's another document that we don't have time to get into here, but maybe I'll read it uh, at some point in the future. I'll read through the whole thing, hopefully. It's pretty interesting, not that long. All right, anyways, so Kenneth Arnold was contacted by Raymond Palmer, the editor of Amazing Stories magazine, Palmer had been sent um, a case and some material from the case and wanted Arnold to help investigate him. This was just after Arnold's sighting. So he wired Arnold $200 to fund an investigation of two harbor patrolmen in Tacoma, Washington, who claimed to have fragments of a flying saucer. And then after the event, Arnold would write a book about it, uh, well, about this incident and other incidents. So the Maury Island Incident... Um, this one was voted on by our Patreon people, by the way. So, you know, they, it was either this one or, um, whatchamacallit, the Dale <laughs> and, um, people did not vote for the Dale. Actually, let's see. I didn't see the, actually, I did not see the final poll. So let me double check this. What if they did vote for the Dale and be like, oh crap. <laughs> whoopsie. <laughs> yeah. Whoopsie daisy. <laughs> then we have to be, uh. Okay, we're doing two episodes this week, guys. <laughs> Let's see, where did that poll go? Still not 100% used to this interface. Pretty sure they did. Oh, yeah, 100% of the people voted for the Maury Island incident. Okay, we're good. We're good. Nice. <laughs> Close call. All right. So, anyways, uh, Kenneth Arnold flew over to the Tacoma area and interviewed Dahl on July 29th. Dahl said that on June 21st, that's three days before Kenneth Arnold's sighting, while on patrol near Maury Island, along with other crew and his 15-year-old son and his dog, they saw six large donut-shaped objects. Now, we actually have a witness statement here. This was from Kenneth Arnold's book, and he actually used a tape recorder to, to record it, so it's pretty accurate. It's, he wasn't taking shorthand notes. He was actually recording this. And supposedly during the event, Arnold videotaped some stuff and took pictures and whatever. Unfortunately, 
I couldn't find any of that stuff. It Not appears, even the recording? Nope. It appears to be lost to time, unfortunately. Oh, that's too bad. Yeah. That'd be so awesome if it was like on YouTube or something. I know. I mean, maybe I just missed it because, um, I mean, I, I found some really good documents and things, but I couldn't find any of that stuff. So it, it might be out there and I just didn't see it. I don't know. But anyways, Ether has volunteered to read this. If it gets a little long, we might switch off. I don't know. But you want to start with the uh, witness statement there, Agent Ether? All right. I'm thumbing through the pages. I can do it. It's pretty long, I know. Okay. On June 21st, 1947, in the afternoon, about 2 o'clock, I was patrolling the East Bay of Maury Island close in to the shore. This practically uninhabited island lies directly opposite Tacoma, about three miles from the mainland. This day, the sea was rather rough, and there were numerous low-hanging clouds. I, as captain, was steering my patrol boat close to the shore of a bay on Maury Island. On board were two crewmen, my 15-year-old son and his dog. As I looked up from the wheel of my boat, I noticed six very large donut-shaped aircraft. I would judge they were about 2,000 feet from the water and almost directly overhead. At first glance, I thought them to be balloons as they seemed to be stationary. However, upon further observance, five of these strange aircraft were circling very slowly around the sixth, one which was stationary in the center of the formation. It appeared to me that the center aircraft was in some kind of trouble as it was losing altitude fairly rapidly. The other aircraft stayed at a distance of about 200 feet above the center one as if they were following the center one down. The center aircraft came to rest almost directly overhead at about 500 feet above the water. All on board our boat were watching these aircraft with a great deal of interest as they apparently had no motors, propellers, or any visible signs of propulsion, and to the best of our hearing, they made no sound. In describing the aircraft, I would say they were at least 100 feet in diameter. Each had a hole in the center, approximately 25 feet in diameter. They were all a sort they were all a sort shell-like, gold and silver color. I think it's supposed to be a, all a sort of or something that yeah, that's definitely a typo. <laughs> Their surface seemed of metal and appeared to be burled because when the light shone on them through the clouds, they were brilliant. Not all one brilliance, but many brilliances, something like a Buick dashboard. I have no idea what that means. I think it just means textured. Okay. Brilliant. So it wasn't it wasn't perfectly smooth, but there were like creases in the, the surface, but it was still shiny where there weren't creases. All mm-hmm. of the aircraft seemed to have large portholes equally spaced around the outside of their donut exterior. There's a lot of detail. Yeah. Yeah, it is. That's why that's, you know, sometimes it might be a little dry, but I think it's important to look at the actual witness statement rather than reading blogs about what people say the witnesses said, you know, because it's hard to have an opinion if you don't look at the actual statement. And if you look at this, well, we'll talk about it when you're done, I guess. These portholes were from five to six feet in diameter and were round. They also appeared to have a dark, circular, continuous window on the inside and bottom of their donut shape as though it were an observation window. Huh, that's very interesting. Yeah, weird, right? Something's looking out. All of us aboard the boat were afraid (coughs) this center balloon was going to crash in the bay, and just a little while before it stopped lowering, we had pulled our boat over to the beach and got out with our harbor patrol camera. I took three or four photographs of these balloons. Was this ever published like in a newspaper? Which was published? The photographs. No, actually, so the photographs, he described them to interviewers as saying that they didn't come out that great. The photographs are sort of at spots on them as if they had been interfered with by something like magnetism or radiation or whatever. But he also said that he had them in his glove box and of his car. And at some point, somebody stole them out of his glove box. They just disappeared. So they are Mm. lost Whoever stole them, we don't know. It's sort of hinted that perhaps a government agent stole them, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. The center yeah, balloon. A man, a man in a black suit. Yeah. 
Oh, are you guys going to talk about the MIB after this? Well, I mean, we'll get to that at some point. I'm not sure what order we'll do it in. Yeah. yeah. The center balloon-like aircraft remained stationary at about 500 feet from the water, while the other five aircraft kept circling over it. After about five or six minutes, one of the aircraft from the circling formation left its place in the formation and lowered itself down right next to the stationary aircraft. In fact, it appeared to touch it and stayed stationary next to the center aircraft as if it were giving some kind of assistance for about three or four minutes. It was then we heard a dull thud, like an underground explosion or a thud similar to a man stamping his heel on damp ground. Immediately following this sound, the center aircraft began spewing forth what seemed like thousands of newspapers from somewhere on the inside of its center. (coughs) Okay. Well, just picture that. Like, you got all this debris fluttering down, right? I I suppose. These newspapers, which turned out to be a white type of very light metal, fluttered to earth, most of them lighting in the bay. Then it seemed to hail on us in the bay and over the beach, black or darker type of metal, which looks similar to lava rock. I'm trying to picture this. Uh, it wasn't painful. Like They must have been really light pieces of metal. Yeah, like think aluminum foil or something. Yeah. We did not know if this metal was coming from the aircraft, but assumed it was as it fell at the same time the white type metal was falling. However, since these fragments were all of a darker color, we did not observe them until they started hitting the beach and the bay. All of these latter fragments seemed hot, almost molten. When they hit the bay, steam rose from the water. So are they watching this from a distance? <clears throat> no, I think at this at this point they are on the beach. On Maybe. The- at some point he goes to like then it seemed to hail us in the bay. Hail on us in the bay and over the well, beach. Well I think didn't Black didn't they go tendo. Yeah. They went to the beach because they were getting hit by like molten metal, basically. Right? Yeah. Okay. And I remember hearing an account that like uh, they had a dog on the board also that like they like the dog died within within this incident and also like one of the one of the uh the crewmen like broke their arm. But some of this information is like it's uh, some of it's a little confusing, you know. Yeah, it's, he's he's about to talk about that in the next next okay. bit here. Okay, I'm just yeah. I'm trying to picture this and and was there any injury reported? He's keep reading, keep okay. reading. <laughs> All right, it's just so strange. Okay. We ran for shelter under a cliff on the beach and behind logs to protect ourselves from the falling debris. In spite of our protection, my son's arm was injured by one of the falling fragments and our dog was hit and killed. We buried the dog at sea on our return trip to Tacoma. After this rain of metal seemed over, all of these strange aircraft lifted slowly and drifted out to the westward, which is out to sea. They rose and disappeared at a tremendous height. The center aircraft, which had spewed the debris, did not seem to be hindered in its flight and still remained in the center of the formation as they all rose and disappeared out to sea. We tried to pick up several pieces of the metal or fragments and found them very hot. In fact, I almost burned my fingers. But after some of them had cooled, we loaded a considerable number of the pieces aboard the boat. We also picked up some of the metal which looked like falling newspapers. My crew and I discussed this observance for a while, and I attempted to radio for my patrol boat back to my base. The static was so great, it was impossible for me to reach my radio station. This I attributed to the presence of these aircraft, as my radio had been in perfect operating order, and the weather would not have caused this amount of interference. Just double-checking. Almost done. Yep, almost (laughs) done. Almost done. done. (laughs) The wheelhouse on our boat had been hit by falling debris and damaged. We immediately started our engines and went directly to Tacoma, where my boy was given first aid at the hospital there. Upon reaching the dock, I had to tell my superior officer how the boat had been damaged and why the dog had not returned with us. I related our experience to Fred L. Christman, my super, my superior officer. I could plainly see that he did not believe it 
and I guess I don't blame him, but we gave him the camera with its film and fragments of the metal we had loaded aboard as proof of our story. Fred L. Chrisman decided he would at least go and investigate the beach where I judged at least 20 tons of debris had fallen. That's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, that's, that is a <laughs> lot. I might add that these strange aircraft appeared completely round, but seemed a little squashed on top and on the bottom, as if you placed a large board on an inner tube and squashed it slightly. The film from our camera developed showed these strange aircrafts, but the negatives were covered with spots similar to a negative that had been close to an X-ray room before it was exposed, except that the spots printed white instead of black, as is usual the case. All right, so this was the story that Harold Dahl related to me, Arnold, the evening of July 29th, 1947, in room 502 in the Winthrop Hotel in Tacoma, Washington. All right, and that's Dahl's story. So it turns out, after we dig in a little bit, that, well, wait, we'll do that. Let's talk about the statement a little bit. What do you guys think about the statement? It was in room 502. It's very specific. Okay. (laughs) No, I was just thinking when we went to um, that hotel and it was haunted, it was just that one room just made me think of that for some reason. (laughs) Unfortunately, we did not get the haunted room. No, no haunted room. Um, Well, it's uh, (laughs) certainly interesting. Yeah, it's... It's got a lot of details. Well, it seems like there's so much physical evidence. Yeah. But you uh but when you research it, there's nothing there, right? There's we don't have any physical evidence. Well, I mean, I'm not actually I'm not sure if anybody still has their hands on any of this slag or metal debris, but uh the Many different people did get their hands on it. It was analyzed by the government and by the by um, True Magazine. So, I mean, it, it was there. It was a real thing. But what was it? I don't know. We'll talk about that in a little bit. I just, I wish somebody had gone there and verified there was really 20 tons. Yeah. That's so, like, how do you even clean up that much debris? That's a lot. Yeah. Right. Well, you would think also, like, like you know, if, if there was that much debris there, uh, then shouldn't it still be there if it's, like, molten metal or what have you? I mean, shouldn't you be able to go there and, and, and still find some of it, maybe? Like, People I don't know have it, looked. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, well, and there are also, like, the, well, I guess we'll, we'll get into that later. The the, uh, the Air Force pilots that crashed, uh, was it, I forget what kind of plane it was, but... Uh, all that debris is still out there because it's in, and, and you know, it's in an area where it's not necessarily easy to get to. And, and yeah, so that's, that debris is still all out there, you know, and, and they were supposed, supposedly, uh, carrying some of that evidence when they crashed, from what I understand. And, and there's different reports of it being either in like a cigar box or like a, like some kind of like a Rice Krispies well, box. Yeah. Yeah. It was like, well, yeah, it's something like that. Yeah. So, but, uh, I mean, yeah, that would definitely be hard to find for sure if, in a crash site. So, you know, it's no wonder did, why it hasn't been found. I did read a blog where somebody who lives in the area went searching the beach where the sighting was supposed to have happened or where he thought it might have. And he did find chunks of metal, but it's been so many years that it's going to be hard to know if those chunks are metal of metal are from this event or if they're from something else entirely. And Mm -hmm. the stuff underwater is going to be covered by the sand. You would need a pretty, it'd be pretty expensive to get the equipment out there to look for that stuff underwater, I imagine. But, you know, people do have looked for it and people have found stuff on the beach. So, I mean, that does sort of kind of make you think, well, maybe, you know, maybe these guys are telling the truth if after so many years people, but then, uh, then again, you know, there's any number of reasons why there could be metal debris on a beach, you know, buried in the sand. When also like dealing with the statements of like like uh, Harold Dahl, like uh, he later redacted, you know, that his statement said it was a hoax, right? From what I understand. Yeah. And, and so. Yeah. 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 Go ahead. Well, I was just I was just saying like so, uh, there's so many different things about this story that that 
it doesn't necessarily line up. A lot of, a lot of uh, tomfoolery and shenanigans abound. Right. You know, we'll it, 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 we'll get like to Fred, them. Yeah, <laughs> For Fred sure. Chrisman. That that's yeah. a, that's that dude's an inter- interesting character. Some of the well, things that he's let's been. Let's pause on him. In. We'll get to him. We'll get to him in a minute. Let's not jump ahead too far here. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. my thoughts about this statement is it's awfully detailed. I've read quite a lot of UFO statements, like quite a lot of them. And this one reads more like a story than it does a UFO That's sighting. That's exactly what I was thinking. Right. So that, I mean, that doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean anything. Like some sci-fi story of the right. time. That doesn't necessarily mean anything because this fella just could be a really creative writer that just, some people just write like that, I guess, you know, if, or talk like that in this case, if they're describing something. Um, most people do not, but hey, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's suspicious, but it's just one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading his account is that this is, yeah, it sounds very, very detailed in a story-like way, you know, but well, so we'll get to, I mean, details that agent ether, I mean, agent, agent ETA mentioned. So one of the things that I found when I was looking into this is that apparently doll was not like an official member of the Harbor patrol, but he sort of worked with them. There was, I don't want to go into all the details, but there was a group of citizens who worked to as sort of like a freelance basis, the the lumber industry is really strong in this area, or at least it was at that time. And there were a bunch of logs that would sort of escape from, the, I guess they would tie them together on a raft and some of them would float off and sometimes sink or sometimes just be floating around. And that would be an actual danger to ships in the area because those logs could damage their hulls. Also, Mm -hmm. they would look around for these derelict or abandoned logs, and if they found them, they could sell them back to the mills for a small reward. Um, I don't think anybody did this like full-time, but they made a little bit of money on it. It might be enough to help offset the expenses of running a boat. So that's one, one of the things that's sort of interesting is if you read this or listen to a statement, it sort of sounds like he's an official officer, you know, like his superior, this guy and that guy. And, but Mm -hmm. no, that was not the case. Now, um, doll was approached by a man in a black suit the next day after the sighting who told him not to talk about his experience. The minor, the man arrived at doll's home in a new Buick and invited him to breakfast. He assumed that the man was from the military, but from what I could find, the man didn't explicitly say this. He had details of the case that he shouldn't have been able to know since Dahl hadn't reported it publicly yet. It was just, it was the next day. He hadn't really told a whole lot of people at all about it. The man issued a vague threat before leaving. And it doesn't say, I couldn't find exactly what that threat was, just that it was sort of a vague threat. So this is a classic Men in Black sighting, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one of the first ones. Some people consider it to be the first one, although there are others we did an episode on this, so it may not necessarily be the first one, but it's a pretty early Men in Black sighting. Every time you say Men in Black, I get the theme song in my head from the first movie. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help Black. it. <laughs> Galaxy Defenders. I forget all the words for that, but yeah. <laughs> it's a fun song. That the rap dancing. for the for the second Men in Black movie was not as good as the first. No, it kind of felt like he was going through the motions on that one. It really did. Yeah. I'll have to do another song. Dang it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, here's a song. There you go. So when Arnold was investigating this, he had actually enlisted Captain E.J. Smith, who was a pilot from United Airlines. And the reason they were working together is I guess they met each other E.J. Smith had also seen a UFO and they had met at like, um, I don't know, a press event or something where they were being interviewed by journalists and they just sort of hit it off. So Arnold had him along for the ride. It's a minor detail and I don't think it matters all that much for the case. Like uh, E.J. Smith doesn't really come up as doing anything unique or interesting that needs to really be mentioned that much. But I just wanted to throw that out there. That's kind of fun. You kind of have this mental image of you know, Arnold calling up his friend Smith and being like, hey, yeah, hey, what are you doing this weekend? <laughs> yeah, a couple of pilots goofing <laughs> around investigating UFOs, you know. <laughs> so Arnold did not actually interview anybody else as far as I could find. Now, he did meet with Chris Min and some other people, I guess, and he got some of the debris, but he didn't actually interview them because he felt that the interviews would have probably gone the same way and it would have been redundant. I feel like that's a huge missed opportunity because sometimes 
you know, well, it, it's really hard with a detailed story like this. It's really hard for all the witnesses to coordinate, you know, to coordinate exactly. Not impossible, but difficult. And oftentimes, if they are hoaxing it, that will come out in the interviews, especially if they're interviewed separately, you know, because mm-hmm. they'll all have, if they have slightly different versions, that's not necessarily a red flag, but sometimes there will be very different versions. But okay, so yeah, the next thing that happened was Arnold contacted Lieutenant Frank Brown from military intelligence stationed at Hamilton Field in California. Brown, along with Captain William L. Davidson, went to Arnold's hotel in Tacoma, and they interviewed some of the witnesses, and they interviewed Arnold, and they collected some debris from the UFO. And they took this debris. They, they were leaving right away. They didn't stay for very long, and they took the debris with them. They flew back on a B-15 bomber that crashed near Kelso, Washington, killing both men. Now, there's actually, a, you can find a crash report, and you can find an FBI file that talks about this quite a lot. The FBI file actually starts off with, Dear Sir, the following in general are the facts regarding the flying disc story that started by Redacted, which subsequently resulted in news stories by the Tacoma Times, the Boise Statement, and the Chicago Times that a B-25 carrying Army intelligence officers was shot down or sabotaged over Kelso, Washington on October 1st, on August 1st, 1947 because it was carrying some flying disc fragments. Um... Again, this FBI file is like pretty long, so we don't have time to go into it too much in detail here. But this is one of the things that's sort of controversial about this case, but kind of interesting. A lot of people think that this bomber was actually shot down or that it was, you know, either by our government, another government, or even UFOs, or that there was something about the debris it was carrying that interfered with the ship that made it crash. Now, the official story is that it caught on fire and crashed. But also there does seem to be some evidence that like one of the wings broke off in air. And that would be kind of interesting for that to happen for like a simple fire. But in any case, the two crewmen who were flying actually got off the airplane. Well, as the two investigators did not, I kind of think it went like this. It was like, okay, well, we ran out of parachutes, boys, peace out. And they just jumped out the plane, right? <laughs> Like, no, but um, I'm sure that's not what happened. But this actually, this is uh, Rupert talks about this incident in depth in one of the chapters on those books, which I've actually read in its entirety. So go check that out. But this, yeah, this is one of those things where we could probably do at least half an hour on this bomber by itself. But at the end of the day, there's no hard evidence to prove that it was shot down or sabotaged or anything like that. But that was actually in newspapers at the time. So it was in the, like the public did think that there were some shenanigans going down. And I'm sure that that must have caused people to believe or give more credence to like a flying saucer story. And that there was some sort of mysterious material or top secret material that these people had been carrying on their plane. But from descriptions, it was probably just a box of debris it was not a substantial amount of material, um, but it was still a top secret or secret transport that the the Air Force didn't admit to until years after the fact, as far as I could find anyways. So there's, there was so much debris, it kind of surprises me that just one plane would be shot down for a small amount. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's unlikely. Yeah. It, it does appear that the most plausible explanation is that the plane experienced mechanical difficulties and crashed you know and again you can read the crash report which i i wish i had printed it out but i'm pretty sure the crash report was actually like an internal document and this is before foia so that you know you could probably take it at face value because probably it was not intended for public release but i didn't investigate that particular part of it all that much so i could be wrong about that so as i mentioned the fbi did investigate the case they concluded that it was a hoax, and they have good reason to do so. You can see in their files, I mean, you can read through their file, how they, you know, some of their investigations and some stuff like that. And while they were questioning Dahl, he actually recanted and said, yeah, I'm sorry, this was all a hoax. And in the FBI file, it does say, you know, sort of to counter that, that Dahl did tell somebody He said, if questioned by the authorities, that he was going to say it was a hoax because he did not want any further trouble over the matter. 
Now, mm-hmm. the doll had been ha- having, apparently had been getting threats. He got that threat by the men in black guy. And there were other problems going on with him, like at work. And he was having trouble with, like his wife was sick. And there was actually, during an interview, his wife was quoted as having said something like, damn it, stop lying about this stuff already or whatever. And in like, you know, an emotional outburst. But again, that could just be because um, if they had been receiving threats, she might have been scared, he might have been scared, and they just didn't want to talk about it anymore. So again, you have this thing in this case where it's sort of ambiguous, right? He did say that he was lying about it, but he also said later on he came out and said, yeah, I just said that because I was being threatened and I I felt like I had to lie about it. So, I mean, it could go both ways, right? He could have come out later on and lied about lying about it or who knows it's we don't know for sure what the truth is here but um there's enough here to say could be either one so the fbi yeah go ahead eta no no, i was just agreeing with you that's all oh okay according to the fbi doll and chrisman had sent stories to several media outlets hoping to drum up interest that someone would pay them for their story so that's sort of their take on it is they were hoping to get this into like the national news and then they could use that to sell books and to, um, you know, to do interviews and make money off of the story. Now it might seem sort of like that would be far, far fetched or something, but this whole alien thing was, this had been in like the public culture for a while now. Um, just look at just one event, the, the famous radio, uh, uh, war of the worlds where, People supposedly thought that it was real. The planet was actually being invaded by aliens and stuff. That radio drama was, I think it was sometime October. I think it was on Halloween 1938, if I remember correctly. And the, the novel it was based on was actually published, I think, in 1897. So this alien invasion stuff, people had been, it had been on the public conscious for a long time. So it wouldn't be out of... You know, out of it wouldn't be too big of a stretch to think that they could have hoaxed this thing to create this story to sort of do that because people have been talking about this stuff for a long time. So the uh, the FBI and other other investigators actually did look at the boat and they didn't find damage consistent with the falling debris story. They said that there seemed to be no recent repairs to the ship. However, Arnold did say that he could see where some repairs had been done. And he, Arnold said it didn't look, it looked nothing like the damage as described by either Fred Chrisman or Dahl in the hotel room had led us to expect. So there were repairs and the damage to the boat, for example, was like, they said the glass had been broken in one place and that had been repaired. So there, I mean, you could, again, you could take that either way. It could be seen as evidence that the damage was not as significant as the story that was told. I mean, that seems to be the case. But on the other hand, if they were really good at repairing it, <laughs> you might not be able to tell. One of the things the FBI said was that the paint on the boat looked like it had several layers of paint and that the paint had been weathered in a way that would have taken several seasons. So it didn't seem to have been freshly painted, you know. But I don't know, maybe they just missed where it had landed. Instead of the whole like large sections of the boat being trashed, maybe it was just small little bits of pieces here and there. So again, that little bit is inconclusive, but it does kind of make you lean towards hoax a little bit, or at least me it does. Yeah, a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about the fragments. Did you look into the fragments at all, Agent ETA? Uh, I mean, a, a little bit. Um, some of it seems to maybe like a possible like like pumice or or you know um, I I know that there was a, a, a there was some kind of a foundry like a metal foundry in the area when there. Yeah, in Tacoma. Yeah. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, theorized that maybe they, they just took up some of that, you know, they, they picked up some of that slag and stuff because that stuff does, you know, it, it is going to look odd, you know, and unusual. And it could, you know, be something you could you could pass for that claim that they made, you know, that there was falling uh, molten metal and stuff like that. So, I mean, yeah, it's 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 a possibility. I mean, it's it's like, you know, like I said, like it, it's uh the story that was given, you know, by uh, uh, Harold Dahl was was a uh, it was it was detailed, but some of it was a, a little iffy. You know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. 
it was just yeah, it was kind of weird, and some some of the evidence didn't line up with it. So I don't know if I necessarily like like Kenneth Arnold. I think I I, I have a lot more confidence in his story and stuff. You know, uh, I think he's telling the truth, and he wasn't trying to hoax anybody. I don't, I, I don't think. And he also like Kenneth Arnold put he put in some great effort to, you know, from what he saw his experience. He he wasn't necessarily saying like oh it's definitely UFOs. He was actually trying to either disprove it or prove it or just just plain try to figure out what the hell he saw. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So he, yeah. to me, he, he seems like more of an honest player. You know what I mean? Yeah. So the military or the FBI, I think, did actually analyze the fragments and they came to the conclusion that it was slag from a mill. So slag is sort of like leftover waste metal when you're, you know, if you're crafting some metal and you put it in your whatever crafting mold or your crafting m- table. Yeah, crafting table or you're mixing different <laughs> alloys or whatever it is they're doing. Sometimes you get leftover chunks of metal that sort of, you know, just look like blobs of metal or rock or something. And that's slag, uh, as far as I understand. I mean, I didn't do an in-depth look at what slag actually is, but that's what I'm assuming it is. I mean, I've seen pictures and stuff of it. And it looks like just sort of molten metal that's just sort of, you know, blobs. Ray Palmer actually uh, published an analysis, too, in his magazine. And they found, you know, calcium, iron, zinc, titanium, aluminum, manganese, copper, magnesium, silicone, nickel, lead, strontium, chromium, and traces of silver and tin and cadmium in the two different metals. So, I mean, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know, that uh, certainly are types of metal, I suppose. Um, but, the, you know, there were two different types of metal, and that's about all there is to it. There's not a whole lot more to it other than uh, they analyzed it and the government thinks it was slag. <laughs> But of course, that's what they would tell you, right? So, we're, there were two types of things falling from the sky, though. Yeah. So, what did they analyze? Both of them? Well, I couldn't find um, an analysis of, of the lighter material from the government, but they did analyze the heavier material. Okay. And that's what they said was slag. But the lighter material could possibly have been aluminum, because that's what it, by all accounts, what it looked like. But I don't know. The the analysis may not be super conclusive because, hey, if you got like an interplanetary spaceship using slag as fuel and it falls out, that's what's going to look like, right? They live in the same universe as us. They have access to the same materials we do. So it's not too much of a stretch to think that a damaged ship may be leaking molten metal, you know? that's That doesn't necessarily rule anything out. Now, could, I, now I want to go to the Blue Book files and see if anybody else has reported... A UFO leaking molten metal. Uh, yeah, there actually have been a couple of cases yeah. reporting that, yeah. Um, for example, the Rendlesham Forest case, they, uh, what was his name, Colonel Halt, when he was goofing around the woods, said that it looked like it was dripping material. I don't know whether or not they actually recovered any. I don't think I remember reading that. But he did say it looked like it was dripping something. So that's probably the most prominent case I can think of. But I have seen that once or twice. It's not super common, though. But it, ha- it does show up once in a while in the case files. But there's, as, as far as case, speaking of Blue Book, I couldn't find like an actual case file on this. I did find a mention of it in a different file, but I didn't find like a case file specific to this. But maybe I just didn't look hard enough. You know, but either way, um, either way, it, it may, it, well, Blue Book wasn't even a thing back then. So maybe that's why. But they, they do have reports from 1947. So who knows? The military reports may be filed under a totally different, you know, organization. Maybe it's under the army. It's not even, you know, with Blue Book, whatever files they have on this thing. But all right. So another thing that I found was that after the B-25 crash, Arnold met with a man named Colonel Sanders from McCord Air Force Base. And this one, I only found this on one source, which I, I forgot to write down, but I was kind of like, is this really, is this a joke? <laughs> Did Colonel Sanders really meet with, uh, you know, he met him for mm-hmm. lunch, for a, a chicken lunch, right? No. Mm-hmm. but um, <laughs> So he took Arnold to the Tacoma smelter and showed him the slag. And Arnold said that they weren't exactly the same, but they were similar. And then Sanders collected all of the pieces from the Morley, Morley Island incident. Arnold had wanted to keep some to make an ashtray, but Sanders wouldn't let him keep any of it. 
Some people say this is suspicious because if it was really just slag from the Tacoma mill, then it would have been more or less worthless. You know, that slag is not really all that valuable and you can't really do a whole lot with it. Nobody's going to want to keep it. You would just throw it away probably, you know, if you didn't want to make an ashtray out of it. So a lot of people think that this is like a sort of a smoking gun, that the slag was not really slag from the Tacoma mill and the government is just, you know, covering that up. It was actually was material from a flying saucer or a flying donut in this case. But uh, we don't know. We don't know that for sure. But we do seem to have a little bit of evidence of that. And that could have been where the stuff went. We were talking earlier that, you know, there should be a ton of this material. Maybe the government went and collected it from all of the prominent witnesses and kept as much of it as possible and kept it under wraps. So that's, you know, that's a fun thing about this case is every time you think it might be a hoax, there's this like this little grain of something that pops up that makes you think, well, maybe, maybe not. Maybe it really was real because the government wouldn't do that if it was all fake, you know, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It doesn't prove anything. It's just sort of interesting. Yeah. Some, some of the stuff kind of almost points to like a cover up. you know what I mean? Like, like people getting approached by, you know, men in black and being told to shut up about it basically, you know, and, and yeah. You know, the, the, like those pictures getting stolen and, and stuff. Uh, some of it, it kind of seems like there could have been a cover up. I don't know. It, it, I think it's yeah. it, it's just as likely as a hoax. I don't know which one I really fall on, to be honest, but it's possible, I think. Yeah. So the, the more you look into this case, the weirder it looks. For example, when Kenneth Arnold arrived in Tacoma, he called the Winthrop Hotel to get a room. The hotel had a good rep- reputation, so he thought it'd be a good place to stay. When he called, they said they already had a reservation in his name. And he asked, and they they couldn't really give him any explanation as to why this was. So, I mean, I thought that was kind of weird. <laughs> like, who made that for reservation sure. for him? It is possible that um, that it could have been made by the magazine editor. Um, what's his name? Uh, I just said it. Why can't I remember this? But they, they could have called ahead and made the reservation for him. But since, I mean, since they, Ray Palmer, that's his name. So Ray Palmer oh, yeah. could have called ahead and made the reservation for him. But if he had done that, wouldn't he, wouldn't he have told Arnold? Like, he didn't even know Arnold was going to go to that specific hotel. Maybe that there are not that many hotels in Tacoma at the time, but there had to have been more than one. So he would have told him, I made, a, I made you a reservation, but he didn't. So Maybe he just forgot, and then coincidentally, Arnold went to that hotel. Yeah, that's, that's actually a real possibility, I think. But it's just sort of one of these strange little details that keep popping up in this case. Now, another thing about the hotel room, while he was investigating the case, someone was reporting on Arnold's whereabouts to the local Tacoma newspaper. Somebody called and gave them um, bits of conversations and reported on his whereabouts, like when he was traveling to different places, you know, told them where he would be. So some people say that the hotel room must have been bugged because there were like really specific things that you would have only known if you were in that hotel room or if you were listening in on the hotel room. Nobody knows to this day who put those bugs there. Um, but we do know that the FBI was involved in investigating the case. And we do know that, you know, at the time, J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI and he was, he would not shy away from, <laughs> from doing something like that. You know, that would be very mild on the, the, spectrum of things he would be willing to do to investigate something. So it could have been them. It could have been somebody else. Some people think that it was actually um, not Arnold. It was um, actually one of the witnesses that was sort of sneaking away and calling the newspaper and telling them like maybe Chrisman because he wanted to get this story in the newspaper so that, you know, again, he can make money on it. So it could have been him. But as far as I could find, even to this day, we don't know for sure who was doing this, but it looks really kind of weird, uh, you know? I don't know. Back in the day, how easy would it have been for somebody to get bugging equipment and then to go in and have the technical skills to install bugging equipment? Well, if it was the FBI, they definitely yeah, could have done it. Yeah, but you said maybe it was uh, Chrisman. Yeah, well, maybe it was Chrisman or Dahl who were in the room with Arnold a lot of the time. I see. And so they were there. They could have heard phone conversations. They could have heard other people talking. 
you know, if Arnold was talking with you know, a government official, which he reportedly did, they would be able to know what those conversations were. So that's what some people think, but other people think that it was bugged, but we don't really know. But it's just one of these mysterious things about the case where it's like, all right, if the government's really bugging this, they're taking it very seriously. It doesn't make the story true. It just means that they were taking it very seriously, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So did you, so ETA, you said that you talked or you read a little bit about the, one of the witnesses, Chrisman. Did you want to talk about him? Because <laughs> this guy, this guy is a pretty interesting guy. Yeah. There's, there's a lot going on there. And, and um, yeah, it's a, uh, Fred Chrisman was an interesting character and, and, and he was into a lot of different things. It, like it, it, it's been uh, supposed that he was uh a part of like like secret like uh, society type groups and stuff, and that he had even started one of his own. Because uh, I guess later on he was actually he ended up becoming a teacher, hmm. and uh, he started be, like you know a, a secret society type of group or what have you with like like some of the students or something. Uh, to me, it sounds a little bit suspect. I don't know, <laughs> but um, he was even uh, somewhat a part of the the JFK assassination. I heard. I, yeah. I read a little a little bit about that. He was a uh, like one of the three hobos that were uh, had been led away from the scene, and there's actually a picture of it. And uh, like uh, that, that's that that's really weird. Like, how the hell was like how is that connection there? Yeah, you know, that's it's, it's well, it's weird. I found that so he during World War II he was a member of OSS. That's the Office of Strategic Surface Services. He was also a fighter pilot, but that would mm-hmm. be like an intelligence branch, the OSS. After the war, I found that he was transferred to the CIA, which had been opened in 1947. So supposedly he worked for the CIA after the war. I couldn't, mm-hmm. I, I just didn't have time to verify that. That I don't, I don't know. I'd have to dig up some documents on the guy. I was unable to do that. But this is, so this is rumors. This is not necessarily proven, but yeah. I mean, we haven't talked about the JFK assassination, but I think one of the possible explanations is that it was done by the CIA for you know any number of nefarious purposes? So mm-hmm. he, this this could be the guy on Morley, the Maury Island incident. He could be one of the guys that shot JFK. How crazy is that? He was yes. actually subpoenaed for one of the. Let me see. I got to scroll down on my notes a little bit. Um, let's see. He was subpoenaed by Jim Garrison to testify against Clay Shaw in in a court case. So it's like we know for a fact that because you can look up that that court subpoena or whatever the court records i'm sure that he was involved somehow but it's all sort of sketchy you know like i'd have to look into that case that's what i mean like this case ties into so much other stuff it's like whoa jfk Mm -hmm. like i don't even begin to have enough time to look into that today so I, i i say this with a grain of salt because i didn't have time to look into it but that's what I found that this guy was involved with the friggin' JFK assassination somehow. That's wild stuff, right? Hell and yeah. Before the Maury Island incident, he was involved in the Shaver mystery. So letters were sent to amazing stories by a man named Richard Shaver about an underground civilization. His oh, stories yeah. had things like UFOs and robots and all this. It was it's a pretty wild story. But the magazine, it's it's crazy. Like part of the story was there, there were subterranean like beings and like, like to me, it just sounds like a wild comic book story really, to be honest. But like some of the, this, uh, this race of, uh, individuals living in the subterranean, uh, earth, whatever, like they, their main purpose were like to torture humanity, you know, and and, like to, like they would, they would, uh, abduct people sometimes from time to time and then bring them down there for torture, I guess, or whatever. But yeah, and I, th- I think it w- there was a comic book made about it, wasn't there? I, I think I've never um, seen probably. that. Probably, I'm sure there was. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but, but it sounds pretty wild. Yeah, but it'd be it'd be fun to look into the Shaver mystery for maybe for like a bonus case or something. I don't know. But mm-hmm. the magazine actually told people, yeah, if you got anything on this, go ahead and write in. So Chrisman actually wrote into the magazine and said that um, him and another soldier were wounded by some sort of ray gun during World War II. I don't know. There may or may not have been a fight with lizard people, but uh, I don't want to go into too much into depth on that, but he did say that he encountered some of this stuff, (laughs) you know, involving the, um, 
the the shaver mystery, which I was like, okay, so the the this Crispin guy, he's got, he, I don't know, he he pops up from time to time, you know, it's it's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So let's let's move on to the son on the boat. His name was Charles, and he went missing when Kenneth Arnold flew out there to interview people. The char the son Charles went missing for some for about a week. And um, he turned up in Lusk, Montana with no memory of how he got there or who he was. And Arnold himself didn't think that this was connected to the UFO incident, but some people think this might indicate a UFO abduction because it sort of has, you know, people with missing time, missing memories that some, some abductees report waking up in a place where they don't remember going to. I mean, it sounds like a classic UFO abduction, but... Montana's kind of far, though. Yeah, Montana's kind of far, and none of the other witnesses on the boat said anything about anybody being abducted, right? So you could interpret it as a UFO abduction, or you could also interpret it as the son going away for a little bit so he wouldn't have to be interviewed because maybe he wasn't really on the boat. Maybe his arm wasn't really injured, you know? So if if he wasn't there, then you can't find the physical evidence of his arm being injured. So you could interpret it either way, <laughs> or maybe some other way that I'm not thinking of. But that is one of the strange things about the case. <laughs> and it's just another thing that kind of makes you wonder, like, huh, that's weird. You know, what do you make of that, Agent Ether? It's weird. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it just, it seems so unlikely to me that he'd wake up in Montana and then... I want to know more to the story. Like, when did he get his memory back? Does he ever know who he really is? Who picked him up? Right, exactly. Yeah. Does, does Arnold ever get to talk to him? Not that I could find, no. Yeah, it's just such a weird part of the case. So, you know, we talked about um, Chrisman and Dahl. They both admitted to the investigators that the story had been a hoax. But, um, you know, Dahl, at least I found, recanted that at some point. And uh, I guess sometime during the investigation, I found that Crispin was recalled to active duty and sent to Alaska. <laughs> but mm. I couldn't, again, I couldn't verify that. Like so much of this case, it's just really hard to verify hardly anything of this, really. <laughs> but um, we, we do have that investigation by Kenneth Arnold, and we do have those witness statements, and we do have some physical evidence, which is pretty exciting. So even if this is a hoax, it's... I don't know. So my, I guess that that's all we have for this case. Now, this case, we could have done, you could do multiple episodes on this because it ties into so much, like mm-hmm. really no kidding. You could do multiple episodes on all this crazy stuff. And it just, it, once you go down the rabbit hole, it just leads to so many other cases, you know, which is kind of, it's sort of interesting in that way. But when you look at the evidence, I lean towards the side of it being a hoax just because of who was involved you know, but even if it was a hoax, you still have Chrisman, who supposedly worked for the CIA. So that's weird. <laughs> what was he doing involved with that? You know, and people who went and inspected the boat said that it was like real shitty, like the engine barely ran and it looked like it was falling apart, you know, kind of a thing. So it wasn't like a super legit business kind of a deal. It definitely was not an official Harbor Patrol boat. It looked like uh, maybe Chrisman found the cheapest boat possible, and maybe he was behind the hoax all along. Even in the witness statement, though, Dahl says that Chrisman didn't believe him at first. If you were crafting a you know a hoax like this, you would do that. That's something that they do in like a, a story. Is they'll always have like that um, that disbelieving person who you know you have somebody witness something strange. They'll tell a friend, then the friend is skeptical until they see it for themselves. And that was part of the story is that Chrisman went to get this to invest. Did we mention this? Chrisman went the following day to collect some material on the island, on the Mori Island. And when he was there, he saw one of the UFOs appear as if it was watching him. And then it flew, it disappeared behind a cloud or something. But that's like a, a classic thing that you see in a lot of stories. You have, you have this disbelieving character who at some point along the narrative sees whatever it is, you know, ghost, alien, UFO, monster, encounters it for himself, and then they become a believer, right? Yeah. It's just it's a it's a classic tool used by writers 
to make you know to make the character's story more interesting i guess or you know well, more believable yeah or it's or another another version of this would just just to be like if if the character witnesses something you need another character there to react to that right you'll see this a lot in stories as well if you don't have anybody reacting to that you just have somebody telling the story it's a lot less interesting but if you have somebody saying oh my god that's crazy then it's you know it has more impact you know so it's it's sort of like that you know it would have had impact for me what's that is instead of the dog dying if someone else had died and then yeah. they're like we did a burial at sea and you're like really yeah yeah <laughs> So that's the thing where there's so much about this case where it's like, well, they buried the dog at sea. Well, that's awfully convenient, isn't yeah. it? Did they ever mm. really even have a dog? Who buries the dog at sea anyways? It's just overboard. Well, <laughs> Bye, dog. Well, that's that's how you pay your respects to a real sea dog, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's I think it's a really interesting case. I just, I'm not 100% convinced it's real. What do you guys think? Yeah, I'm, you know, I actually am normally pretty skeptical. So on this one, I feel like I'm going to call it a hoax. Yeah, call it a hoax. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, uh, Rupert thought it was a hoax too, but uh, I didn't, I didn't want to talk about his book, his chapter of his book. Sorry, you read that. So you guys can go back for that. But what do you think, ETA? What side do you come down on this? Yeah, on this I'm, I'm, I'm kind of coming down on the side of it's more possible that it's a hoax than real. Mm-hmm. Just because the the some of the some of the stuff is just a little wishy washy, you know, and, and there's not there's not a ton of evidence. Like the, it's just hard proof, and also like yeah, what what, what we talked about, like uh, some of the characters involved are not necessarily uh, potentially trustworthy. I guess you know, it's not like they're all airline pilots and police officers, like yeah, really upstanding citizens. Yeah, mm-hmm. and. And like, I wonder if this was like a CIA plant, like Crispin working for the CIA planted this story, you know? Yeah, but to what end? Because I was thinking about that, but but why? Well, remember, um, Roswell was just, uh, was, I think, what was it? 14 days, I forget. 14 days or something. Like, it was very shortly thereafter. Roswell, remember, that's one of the, the only case I know of where the government actually issued, the military issued a press release saying they have a crashed flying saucer. They mm-hmm. said it. They said they had it, and then they very quickly retracted it. Now, I, I haven't done the deep dive on Roswell. I have read quite a lot about it, but I'm not really convinced about that case one way or the other. But if the government had that, they wouldn't come out and say they had that. They would never admit to it, right? So why yeah. would they release that statement, right? It's a conundrum. I think that the, there's a good chance that they would do something like this to throw off our enemies, let's say the Russians. Because you remember we did Operation Paperclip? Mm-hmm. So after World War II, there was a mad dash to get their hands on as many German scientists as they could. So what if this is simply a misdirection, right? They're trying to get Russia to waste their resources investigating stuff like this while we're somewhere else doing the real stuff somewhere else, right? And then... You know, if you're a foreign power, you're going to look at this and you're going to think that's not an alien craft. That has to be some sort of top secret thing that people don't know about. You know what I mean? That's, mm-hmm. I think that's how a foreign power would interpret this. So it's, I don't know. It's just one yeah. particular angle that's possible. But if Crispin really did work for the CIA, I think he might have been behind the whole story, you know? And he might have pitched it to Dahl as a way that they could get rich. But, Really, he wasn't trying to get rich. He was just using it as some sort of psyop. It might yeah. be. It might seem a little bit of a stretch, and maybe it is. I don't know. It's just one idea that occurred to me. I don't know. He sounds like quite the storyteller, too. Well, yeah, yeah, that doll, especially, yeah, yeah, <laughs> was really good at telling. I, the I like the whole ray gun. Yeah, ray gun thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, he didn't necessarily fight lizards. Maybe it was all just made up. I don't know. Cave lizards from the center of the earth with ray guns and stuff. But I did find that actually somebody said that the Japanese military had been working on some sort of like, you know, energy weapon, but I don't know who knows that. I I didn't look into that either. Cause I didn't have time. <laughs> it's just, this case mm-hmm. just touches on so much stuff like that. It's just, you wouldn't have time to possibly look for everything. All right. Well, I guess that about wraps it up for this week's episode before y'all get going this week's product from Amazon. What do we got? Well, what should I do? The calendar? Let's do the calendar. Okay. It's the end of the year and you probably need a calendar too. 
just like me. I actually just bought this one myself. Maybe I'll post a picture of it on Discord, but it's this funny. Is, Every year he gets the same calendar series. It's always the same theme. And now it's more of like a family tradition. So this year he's like, oh, should we get something different? And I was like, we we can't. We can't get something different. It would feel too weird. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a basically sci-fi. Um, sci-fi covers. Here, let me post a picture of it on Discord I took earlier. Uh, let's see. There we go. Post it in live show chat. Um, and it's just it's just like vintage sci-fi pictures. I don't know. I think it looks pretty cool. From like books. Yeah. From like book covers. Right. Yeah. Or I think they might be um, magazine, magazine covers. Magazine covers. Books or magazines. I think it might be both. It makes right. me want to read the story. So you have these images on the calendar, which represent the covers in the magazine with like the author and the title of the book, I'm like, I want to go read this. I'm going to go yeah. read this little excerpt in this magazine. Some of them are pretty wild too. The the photo, the pictures, I mean, like they're, some of them are not that exciting. Like here's, here's one is a lady and a rocket in the background. Like, okay, that's not that exciting. Is but she scantily clad? Nope. Just <laughs> like uh, shoulders up basically. But here you have one, what is this? You have scantily clad women and a dude who, uh, it's getting kind of fuzzy because I'm zooming in, but a dude who might be sitting on a throne or something, like that one looks kind of weird. Here's another one with like little blue people carrying something around. I don't know what that's all about. <laughs> yeah, a lot of them have like <laughs> alien themes or you're on another planet. Yeah. I just think it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it, it just, is. It is vintage. Fun. I love it. Mm-hmm. This vintage art is pretty cool stuff. But all right, so that's about all we got for you this week's Shout out. Oh, for a live audience? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, people have been coming and going this whole time, so we only got four people left in the audience, unfortunately. Should have done the shout-out earlier. There's a lot more people earlier. But anyways, we've got Alzi Mima, Little P, Professor S, and Amps. Thanks for sticking around and listening to the show, you guys. We really appreciate you for being in our live audience. It's uh, I've said it before, but it's uh, quite a lot more fun recording with an audience because you feel like, I don't know, like there's an audience there instead of just talking into the void. Hi. What about you, Aging Ether? Do you still get stage fright, Aging Ether? No, no, I think it's gone. Yeah. At first she said she was a little, feeling not too shy, but a little bit, a little bit shy, would you say? Just nervous. Just a little nervous? A little yeah. nervous. Okay. Well, now you don't have to worry about that anymore because you're used to it by now, I'm sure, right? Yes. I'm used to all the shenanigans. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Keep it strange. <laughs>